Hi everyone, Dr. Edith here. Today we're tackling a topic that has become really popular in recent years, often thanks to influencers selling us supplements to improve it. I'm talking about the health of our gut. Yes, I said our gut, as in our entire intestinal tract. And listen, we're learning more and more about just how important our gut is for our overall health. And today we're talking about how to set our kids up for good gut health from the beginning of life. From Columbia University Children's Health at the Columbia University Irving Medical Center here in New York City, you are listening to The Stuff That Matters for Kids Health. Welcome to the show. I'm Dr. Edith Bracho Sanchez. I am a new mama who also happens to be a pediatrician, and I want to personally invite you to join me in talking to some of the most brilliant minds of our time as I ask them, what are the things that really matter today for our kids to turn out okay? For today's show, I sat down with Dr. Ali Mensen, who is a gastroenterologist and the Division Director for Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition here at Columbia University Irving Medical Center, and with Christine Hoyer, a registered dietitian at New York Presbyterian Hospital. We talked about nutrition in the first 1,000 days of life, what these terms like gut health and the microbiome even mean, and how we can practically implement healthy habits at home. Very quickly, the content on this podcast is provided for general information only and should not be relied on as a substitute for any professional medical advice or treatments. The views shared on this show solely reflect the expertise and experience of me, your host, and our guests. Anyway, here's my chat with Dr. Ali Mensen and Christine Hoyer. Enjoy. Welcome. I'm so excited to chat with you both today. Thanks for having us. We're super happy to be here. Yeah. So... I just want to start, I always like to start these shows by asking people what they do, because sometimes people may not have interacted with a dietitian or a gastroenterologist. So perhaps I'll start with you, Christine. What do you do? So being a clinical dietitian might be a little different than hearing of a nutritionist or dietitian in the community. So we're both in and outside of the hospital reviewing patients' intake and assessments. Typically, they are referred to by a gastroenterologist in our situation. So maybe for failure to thrive, for obesity, food allergies, intestinal failure, any number of things. And as a clinical dietitian, we typically work with kids who eat by mouth or tube feeds or IV nutrition or all three. All of it. You see the full gamut of of ways that children eat. Yes. Which is why we're so excited to chat with you. Now, what about a gastroenterologist, Ali? Well, it's a little bit complicated, but you know, for kids, I usually tell them I'm a tummy doctor. Love that. So I think that's the easiest way to put it. But if you were going to dig in a little bit more deeply to that, basically a gastroenterologist takes care of any disease pathology from the esophagus all the way down to the bottom. And that also includes the liver and the pancreas. As an academic gastroenterologist, I also have to participate in some research and help educate our fellows and trainees. Yeah, which we're so grateful that you do, right? And you are a resource here to us general pediatricians at Columbia who refer to you and learn from you, right? And And I learn from the general pediatricians too. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very collaborative environment here at Columbia. So I want to start by talking to you guys a little bit about my hopes, dreams, and aspirations for my little guy at home, (laughs) because I think more and more for us moms, 
we're sort of starting to recognize the importance of gut health in the GI tracts and go a little bit beyond what we used to think was just, oh, kids will gain weight. So I'll tell you a couple of things that I want for my little guy, and his name is William. He's a little picky, like any toddler. But I want him to have good gut health. I want him to not have a food allergy. So I'm sometimes looking like, what can I do? What does the latest science say to prevent food allergy? I also want him to be a good eater because food is fun. And I want him to, of course, grow and thrive. And I want to do all of this while maintaining balance in our home and keeping our sanity. So I thought maybe we could break all these things down because there are a lot of goals to have as a mom. So maybe to start with you, Ali, at the beginning, when it comes to early childhood nutrition, right, right at the beginning, there's this whole concept of the first 1,000 days of life and how those first 1,000 days and what we feed children and what we eat as pregnant women having an impact later on in life. So for people who haven't heard of this concept and the importance of these first 1,000 days, how would you explain it and describe it? Well, I think what's interesting about that whole description is that it is the first 1,000 days and it starts at conception, Uh right? So really we're talking about maternal health, maternal food intake and nutrition prior to birth. And this time is extremely important for the development of the child and especially the child's brain. And then, of course, after they're born, then we have another couple of years that are really important, especially for brain growth and making sure that the child is getting maximum nutrition to optimize them for general growth and brain growth as well and all their neurodevelopmental aspirations. (laughs) Yeah. And if you had to say, what are some key nutrients in those first 1,000 days of life? What are some things that come to mind? So, you know, it's really important that we think about this in terms of just being healthy and having a healthy diet. Mm -hmm. That sounds simple, and it is a simple concept, but sometimes I think we overcomplicate it a little bit, right? Tell me more about that. So everybody should be eating a healthy diet, regardless of your weight or whatever your circumstances, economic circumstance. We should have three healthy meals a day, which means essentially half of the plate is fruits and vegetables, a quarter is protein, and a quarter is starch with two healthy snacks a day. And we should be trying to avoid sugary processed foods as much as possible and staying away from saturated fat as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's really the core, I think, in terms of eating healthy and what will give your child pre-birth the best opportunity to develop normally. I love that. And I just want to ask you one more question about that and we'll move on because I think sometimes it's hard to know what's a processed food. Like so many things are processed these days. How do you guide families in knowing at a high level, right, when they're going to the supermarket, when they're making meals every day, and listen, we all sort of buy the same things and cook the same things because we're busy. So how do you say, like, how do you explain what's a processed food and what should you be avoiding? You know, this is a particularly sensitive topic for me because I take care of a lot of patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease Mm -hmm. who struggle with weight. And Christine may make a comment about this as well, but I I tell patients that if they're eating it out of a box, a lot of the times it is processed. And the best way to eat healthy 
is really home cooked as much as possible. Yeah. So if you're making your own food, it's not going to be processed. But most of the things that you buy outside of the house in a box or fast food that you buy in a restaurant is potentially processed. And so you really want to avoid that. You're not going to be able to do that 100% of the time. Of course. And it's okay to have it every once in a while. But I think it's really important to try to make the norm home-cooked meals, home-prepared meals as much as possible. Yeah. And I mean, it goes without saying, but the hot dogs, the chicken nuggets, right? Yep. Just to be just to be very specific about some of the things that we can't be eating all the time. Of course, we're all busy. We're not striving for perfection, but you know, to be aware of these things. Christine, what are some things you see like high offenders, things that parents sort of rely on more frequently than you would like when it comes to processed foods and some of these things? I mean, I think once Children often find chicken nuggets, you know, juice and soda, potato chips, things like that. And they gravitate towards that, especially potentially in a child who's picky, where like those are the only foods that the parent really sees them eat with joy and and abundance. I think that those are the kinds of things that I see sometimes just parents fall back on when they have children who won't eat very well. It's like always going for those convenience things that they know they will eat well. And I think it's a balance of still encouraging some kind of variety, but not always going to those foods that they know their their child will eat. But I think it's a lot of the junk food that we think of, you know, candy and fast food, chips, things like that, that are introduced sometimes, unfortunately, very early in a child's life. You know, and to be fair and honest, out of need sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, your child is picky. You don't know any better. You're trying to make it to bedtime. (laughs) Um, Maybe I'm speaking for myself here, but you're trying to make it to bedtime and you want them to have something in their belly. So here's some chicken nuggets, right? And I do want to talk a little bit more about some strategies, even if we have already done this. But I wanted to ask again, going back to those concepts, one is the first thousand days of life. Another concept that I don't think we talk about enough and I don't think parents hear about enough at all is this concept of gut health and the importance of early childhood nutrition when it comes to gut health. But I also want to be careful because now it's sort of become this popular word also that is sometimes misinterpreted and taken a little bit out there and, you know, by people, usually by people who are trying to sell things. But what does it really mean? I mean, going back again to the definition, what does that mean to have good gut health and how has it been linked to health in general? So when I think of gut health, I think of a intestinal environment that promotes the health of the overall body, right? Mm -hmm. And that starts with eating a healthy diet, which will allow your body's intestine to populate with healthy bacteria, which will promote good outcomes. And that actually starts with the first days of life, with breastfeeding, with how you're delivered even. That'll actually determine some of your intestinal microbiome. And use of antibiotics, for example, which can disrupt your intestinal microbiome. These are all things that can affect what kind of bacteria you have in your body, which can in turn affect what kind of diseases you may be predisposed to. 
And there's a lot of data on this and you know, there's a lot more work that needs to be done on this. But there are some clear associations in terms of like breastfeeding, for example, and development of obesity and other types of immune-related diseases if you're not breastfed, right? And, you know, the use of antibiotics, which can potentially disrupt your microbiome and also lead to other types of diseases too. So it starts with a healthy diet, but it also has to do with how you're fed to promote intestinal health and also how we use antibiotics and other things for treatments that may affect your microbiome as well. Mm-hmm. So all of this is happening, correct me if I'm wrong, through the microbiome. Is that right? Like the promotion of gut health happens to a large extent through the microbiome, and that's what's been linked to better or worse health in the future. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And again, a lot of work still needs to be done in this area because I think a lot of the work is very it's correlation-based, association-based. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult to find cause and effect, but there are clear associations between having a healthy microbiome and certain types of disease processes. Mm-hmm. And say one more time, because I don't think we necessarily explained this very well, what is the microbiome? So the microbiome is essentially an incredibly complex ecosystem of bacteria that live in your gut as essentially symbiotic organisms. They're there not only for their own benefit, but they're there for you as well. Yeah. And a healthy microbiome, I like to think of it as a healthy rainforest, right? Yeah. Uh, Populate with all different types of bacteria, creating a healthy environment. And this healthy environment can be disrupted, like I mentioned before, whether through the use of antibiotics maybe through an unhealthy diet, right? And that ecosystem is disrupted and actually affects the health of your body. But by eating healthy and avoiding things like antibiotics, you can actually promote a healthy jungle, a healthy (laughs) ecosystem within your intestinal tract. I love that. We're going to call it a jungle. (laughs) (laughs) Christine, when we're thinking about diversity in our diet, and ways that we can promote a healthy microbiome, a healthy jungle through the things that we eat. How do we even start to do that as parents at home? So the diversity really refers to a lot of the different components. So different types of proteins, different types of micronutrients like iron and zinc and B vitamins, different types of carbohydrates and prebiotics, you know, all these kinds of things together. So I think all those nutrients and words just kind of do overwhelm parents quite a bit. So I think just focusing on a diversity of foods. So even a couple times a week, like encouraging your child to try a different vegetable, to try a different fruit, try a different grain. And a lot of it comes from modeling. You said yourself, like food is fun. I think that's going to be a big help for your son is just that attitude in general that like new things can be fun. They don't always mean they're scary. Yeah. So always keeping in mind that, you know, you're going to do this together and try new things a couple times a week. And it's okay to have the same thing two to three times a week, just not every single day for many meals on end, but to, you know, kind of keep that in mind that a few days a week would be optimal to start improving the diversity. If your child is not very picky and loves to try new things all three meals every single day, 
great. You're not going to have a problem yeah. with diversity. <laughs> that's a that's a difficult thing. I think that's yes. a, that's an aberration, it's rare. right? It's rare. <laughs> I think one thing to think about is that it's really it's the norm for children to be picky. Yeah, yes. and there's probably good reason for that from historical perspective, right? right. Because children from an evolutionary perspective, tended to actually pass away from like diarrheal illness, GI-related disease. So it kind of makes sense that a two to three-year-old thinks twice about whatever they put in their mouth. Yeah. You know, like, and maybe it even is a reason why they pick foods that are you know, a little bit more constipating. I don't know. This is pure speculation on my part, but having, you know, taking care of patients like this for so many years, I don't believe it's an aberration for children to be picky, especially in that age group. I think there's probably a good reason for it. Yeah. And I love that you say that because we've had this come up throughout our show in different episodes. And for parents who are listening, definitely go back to prior episodes because there is this recurring theme in everyone that I've sat down with about giving children credit. I mean, whether it is, you know, they're being picky at home or they got in a fight at school, like they really are doing what they believe is best. And and probably from a historical, biological perspective, there is some pickiness that sort of translates. And listen, I've experienced that at home. I've done what I know best to prevent it. And it still happens. There's still preferences, right? But to give credit to my toddler, he is he is a pretty good eater, but he has his preferences. Yeah, absolutely. He does. And right. And I think we forget too that like at that at a young age, kids also eat to hunger fullness. Whereas adults, right. like we're putting our emotional eating into it. We're putting our bad day at work and we're putting right. the fact we didn't get a break at work right. into us skipping a meal. And so we don't criticize ourselves like we criticize our kids and their portions and all this kind of stuff. And I think I had really valuable advice early on in my career from a pediatrician that I worked with that said, you know, three to four days a week, your kid's going to maybe impress you and make you happy how they ate. Three to four days a week, you're going to think they didn't eat enough or they ate too much junk food or whatever. And that's about what normal is. And to make them, you know, every single day have a A plus diet is just not really realistic or feasible. No, it's never going to happen. Well, I was going to say one other thing is that there's probably a really strong evolutionary drive for a parent to see their child eat. Oh, yeah. So some of it's on us, (laughs) right? And the anxiety that parents have when they see a half empty plate is huge, right? But if the child is eating relatively well and is growing well, it's probably going to be fine, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think we should give ourselves a a break as parents, right? Yeah. Uh, But that's probably also an evolutionary thing too. We want to see our kids grow and get bigger and we need to feed them and we gain great pleasure out of it when it doesn't happen. There is that stress. Let's recognize that. Yeah. And give ourselves some a little bit of a break as parents. Yeah. uh, And just do the best job we can in terms of having our kids eat. Love that. Love that. I always tell families, you know, trust your child. Trust that they'll tell you when they're hungry. Trust that they'll tell you when they're full. It doesn't always make sense to us as adults, but it really does make sense in their little belly brain, you know, communication they have going on. But 
you know, even knowing that as a pediatrician, I'm guilty as a mom, right? Last night I did it. And my husband sort of said, Edith, perhaps let's stop. But we were having rice and chicken and a salad. And William made a couple bites and he didn't want any more. And I was coming up with all kinds of ways to encourage him to eat more. And my husband was like, remember what you always say. <laughs> but my, my impulse in that moment was to try to figure out a way for him to eat more. And I had to, you know, again, remind myself of the things that I say, which is trust your child. So, Christine, for a parent who has fallen into this trap, again, out of necessity, desperation, whatever you want to call it, but, you know, their kids are having a lot of chicken nuggets and a lot of the same foods and, you know, unfortunately, some processed foods. Where do we begin to really get out of that habit and wean off of those foods a little bit? Well, I think it does begin with, you know, attitude, doing a little bit as a parent, like a self-assessment. Am I... Also trying new foods with them. Am I bringing things into the house that I maybe try to push them to eat, but I don't necessarily eat them? And so I think, but mentioning earlier on the podcast, just being reasonable financially, mentally, emotionally, that trying new things a couple to three times a week when you have a child that's really only eating five foods or whatever is a more realistic way to do it. You're going to expand their diet maybe be a little slower than you would like, but you're at least offering them new foods without maybe wasting too much food if they won't eat it. If you just two nights a week that are a little bit less stress, maybe like a Saturday when nobody had school, nobody had work, you know, to try a couple of new things. One other thing I feel like that's really falling by the wayside with a lot of online shopping is not taking your children to the grocery store as much as maybe like when I was growing up. I know that's also a whole other slew of issues, you know, (laughs) sugary cereals and candies and things that they can see at the grocery store, but they're also missing out on like seeing all the fruits and vegetables that are available or maybe being able to pick out like what one new thing looks fun to try, Mm -hmm. you know, as a two-year-old, like what a big pink grapefruit looks like or whatever, maybe that might be exciting to them. So, you know, again, balancing as a parent, what you've got energy for and and what you'd like to teach them. And so I think, you know, whether it's like once a month having them come to the grocery store with you so you can have a good experience and also other weeks get things you need to get done or whatever and just have them have that experience at least every so often in order to look and see new foods. Yeah. I mean, it really is such a part of growing up for so many of us, right? Like I always went to the store with my parents and I don't always have the time to take William Mm -hmm. um, to the store, but he loves it. Like when I do, he just loves it. Like the last time we were there, he grabbed this big giant lemon and he just scared it all the way to the cashier. He was so excited (laughs) about his lemon. And I was like, I guess I don't really buy lemons. He really wanted his lemon. What can I say? He wanted a lemon, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, they might surprise you if you do. And if you include them in the shopping, perhaps in the preparation. Definitely the preparation too. Yeah. Yeah, That can be really fun and make a lot of memories like together with you and your child that, you know, that time you always made like spaghetti together or whatever. I think most of us remember that from our parents and those things are really important to also have with your children. Yeah. So listen, there's one more concept I want us to, to touch on very briefly before I let you guys go. And it is the concept of reducing the risk of developing a food allergy through actually introducing food allergens early. Ali, tell us more about that. So, you know, the allergen that we talk about the most is peanut allergy. Right. 
And the recommendation now is for peanuts to be introduced into the diet at about six months of age. And children with moderate to severe eczema, they actually need to be tested by an allergist before you do the introduction. But children with mild eczema, you can actually just try them on a little bit of peanut at home. And it shouldn't be like a whole peanut. It should be some peanut butter mixed in a little bit of warm water. Yeah. Because obviously you don't want the child to uh, swallow peanut at that course, age. And they're and not choke. used to, the, <laughs> to those types of foods yet. But it's been shown that that actually reduces the incidence of peanut allergy later in life. And that's great. Yeah. So, and by the same token, that may be the mechanism behind reducing allergens to other foods as well. But peanuts, the one that I think we talk the most about. Yeah. And I mean, as a primary care pediatrician, I actually am telling my families the minute they start solids. And some families start as early as four months or five mm -hmm. months. If the kids are interested, if they're holding up their little neck, I say, sure, go for it. They're interested. You want to do it? Go for it. It's not unsafe. It's actually, you know, been shown to be safe. And I do tell them, introduce peanuts in the form of peanut butter and shellfish and fish and eggs. We have a little bit of data for eggs as mm -hmm. well. Soy and wheat, sesame. I tell them to go mm -hmm. for all of it. Is that what you do as well, Christine? Yeah. I mean, I think that's really where the research is like right now. And then remembering, you know, the incidence of food allergies is really 8% of children. So it's yeah. not zero, but it's not the majority. And there's guidelines now, you know, just like Dr. Minson went through. So I do think that that encourages a variety of foods in a toddler, much, much more of a high likelihood of trying more foods is that even before they can remember, you're offering them a variety of things and not treating new foods as scary. Like, oh, are they going to have an allergy? Right. Oh, are they going to like it? You know, just kind of trying them and expanding variety as soon as you can. Yeah. And I think, you know, to some extent, it also goes to show that we as physicians, dietitians are not making food scary. I think we used to do a lot of, you know, wait, wait to do, you know, wait right. to introduce whatever food. And I think to some parents that sounded like it's not safe, right? Like that food is not safe. And so we limited choices. And I think, you know, we talked about how some picky eating and some preferences are normal, but I think when we limited parents' choices and we made some food scary, we probably also limited diversity in those kids' diets by making it scary. So I think part of it is we at least as general pediatricians, I can tell you, we're sort of starting to think about food differently. Yeah, I, I really like the way you said that. Mm -hmm. we're, we're kind of reframing it. And uh, certainly during my training, it was, which is a long time ago, I don't want to say how long, <laughs> but, you know, we're very cautiously introducing, you yes. know, one food at a time, starting with, you know, very simple things. And, you know, maybe they weren't eating very many things by the time right. they even got to a year because of this fear. And I think now especially since there are benefits associated with feeding different types of foods earlier on, that we need to make sure that parents feel comfortable with that. Yeah. And of course, I think they should have a discussion with their pediatrician of first, course. but <laughs> I think that's a very nice way of putting it. I think, Edith. Yeah, great. And, you know, in my experience, families have been really receptive. You know, they look at me and they're like, you mean I can give them anything? And right. they're so excited, you know, and I'm like, yes, whatever you're eating, give them to your baby. You cannot have honey before age one, everyone at home. You probably already <laughs> know this, but, but you know, but have fun, right? Food is supposed to be fun. Last question, Ali, for you. For parents who did not start this early, 
perhaps they have a six, a seven, an eight-year-old, even nine years old or 10, and they didn't introduce these foods early. And they are perhaps having a little bit too much processed foods and they're still picky. Is it too late for some of the benefits if they start to implement some of these changes? I think it's never too late and you should never give up. I think you have to always uh, encourage your child to try new things. And being the father of a 13-year-old, I can tell you, he is picky. Um, So it doesn't really end, right? uh, But we never give up in trying to have him try new and different things. And you know what? Every once in a while, you're going to be surprised. He's going to try something new and they're going to like it. Yeah. But I think you want to avoid falling into the trap of... My child is picky and will always be picky, and so I'm never going to try giving them mm-hmm, something new. Mm-hmm. That's something that we want to try to avoid. Keep it positive, keep trying new things, and encourage them to diversify their diet as much as possible. Great. What a better way to end the show today. Dr. Ali Menson, Christine Hoyer, registered dietitian. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you so much. And thank you at home for joining me on the Stuff That Matters for Kids Health podcast. Just a quick note that this is our last episode for this first season. But as always, if you liked our show, help us spread the word about it. That's right. We'd love it if you could tell a parent, friend, IRL in real life, or just drop a link on your group chat. We'll take that too. You can also find us and more information on kids health on our social media channels at Kids at Columbia. I'm Dr. Edith Bracho Sanchez in New York. And I hope to see you all soon.